Swinton paying Hermosa finds the target. Swinton it was. There's a little short kick from Hodge. Who gets the bounce? It's there for Banks. He flicks it out the back door and a try on debut for Tom Wright. What a start, Australia. Welcome to another episode of the Rugby Fixation podcast. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by a man that has personally worked with and developed rugby players in Australia for the best part of the last decade. Moving to Australia for the 2012 Super Rugby season, this man has coached with four different Super Rugby outfits, leaving a legacy in Australian rugby, whereas players will attest to the rapport built, the effort put in, and the culture created. Having just finished a four-year stint with the Melbourne Rebels, I'm looking forward to pick the brain of the one and only Dave Vessels. Dave, how are you going? I'm going well, Mitch. I'm... um... Uh, relaxing at the beach so <laughs> life's pretty good there. how's uh the return to south africa been because obviously it's been a bit oh. of a nightmare in uh melbourne for the last little struggle through covid it's nice to be home yeah geez we, we thought a lot about everyone in melbourne i mean they've you know to, to have been in lockdown for as long as they were um we obviously experienced a bit of that we, we, we probably got back to south africa i think in july so yeah, it's been awesome, man. It's like um, just just to see family and things which we haven't done for sort of ten years. I think it's been pretty special. So um, yeah, we're having a great time. And just for I guess the aspect of having to move around while you were with uh, the Melbourne Rebels, how did you and the team sort of cope with that? Because obviously a lot of the games you know weren't able to be played in Victoria, and that affected the yeah. the better part of the last two seasons. How did you cope just as a team, just trying to keep the the culture and I guess the you know, the positive vibes going throughout was such a tough time. Yeah, we had two two stints where we went into a bubble. I think the first one was sort of three or four months. And um, and then the second time it happened, um, it was kind of a crazy situation. It was about probably about 2.30 in the afternoon and we were training out at uh, La Trobe University. And um, yeah, the CEO came onto the field and said that they're going to cr- close the Victorian border at midnight. So we've got to get over the border into ACT. So... We literally walked off the field, drove home, threw some stuff in a bag. Uh, we just drove all of our own cars over the border because we couldn't organize any flights or buses or anything for the group. Um, and I think I crossed over the border at about five minutes to midnight. Um, I had to stop for the mandatory McDonald's on the way, um, <laughs> which left me cutting it a bit far. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, it was crazy because I, you know we were we were traveling across the border at, at that stage. You know, we hadn't we hadn't yet selected the team. Um, and of course, we weren't sure how long we were going to be on the road for. If we were going to be away for the whole season, um, if there were injuries, we weren't going to be able to bring players in to replace those injured players and all sorts of stuff. So I ended up basically insisting that we take the whole group. So we ended up going across the border with probably 70 or 80 people. Um, and we had nowhere to stay. We had, you know, there was there was no hotel accommodation booked or anything like that. Um, so it was a pretty crazy time pulling into Canberra at, at midnight. Um but yeah, we got through it. And, um, I must say, in some ways, it was probably quite good for the group. You know, like it, it uh, we spent a lot of time together that you, you don't otherwise get. Um, but I think on on some other level, it was it was tough being away from family. You know, the fact that we hadn't actually seen family when we left Melbourne. You know, because it was done in such a hurry. My kids were still at school, so we just left and then just didn't see them again for a few months, which was which was quite tough. Um, and I think some of the boys, you know, they they had had even more pressing family situations where the you know, parents were ill or, or other things like that um but um yeah i mean all in all i think also you, you know you've got to get some perspective that there's there's other people in, in the world doing it probably a lot tougher than we were so you know it wasn't it wasn't the easiest time but it certainly wasn't uh, wasn't the worst 
there's so many things in there that I'm keen to unpack because I've um, had a few chats with, uh, obviously, um, in the squad, Brad Wilkin, who uh, went through school with, and he has come out of it saying, you know, so many of the positives about the time you get to spend with, you know, all the players and that, that camaraderie you build. And obviously, there's a big difference, uh, him not having, a, a you know, kids of his own or a family, so to speak of, but, you know, for the players that do have that change, there's obviously been yeah. so much talk um, with uh, Marika Corambetti, probably the biggest example for, you know, the, yeah. the challenges going through. Um, yeah. One of the things, just as you mentioned with the size of the players you take across, um, I'm really interested because obviously as seasons come through, you know, squads get named and the Rebels, it seems that over the last few years have had such a, a hard time of keeping, you know, probably their best starting team healthy for the longest time. There's so many injuries and things to deal with. Um, yeah. Outside of, I guess, the, the 31 or 33 players that generally get named in a squad, how many players do you tend to keep uh, contracted and, you know, um, around yeah. just in case of injuries? Yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a crazy system, which um, the the um, in the in the original format of Super Rugby, which was Super Fifteen, the average number of players used in a season is thirty eight by all teams, um, which is a huge number. Um, if you think about that, that's two and a half teams. Um, and in actual fact, for those for the for the for the for, for the for my first two or three seasons at the club, we used well below the average. I think we used thirty three and then thirty four in our first two seasons. Um, um, so in order to actually win Super Rugby um, and to be competitive, you don't need just a, a strong starting 15. You need probably two or three deep in each position. Um, and I think that's um, one of the areas we struggled in at the club was uh, we because I think in many ways we're not a rugby state and most of the people who played for us weren't living in Melbourne for family reasons. Um, we, we really struggled particularly to keep the layer of player just underneath the starting 15 and particularly those young and exciting players who, you know, you'd hope would stay with the club and then develop into really solid players. Um, they were getting, as soon as they got a, a sniff of a starting opportunity in another state or in another country most often, um, they would unfortunately take that because there was nothing other than the team uh, keeping them to, to Melbourne. Um, and so that's one of the things that we really tried to work hard on uh, off the field is to try to create a community around the players um, so that they felt anchored to the state, um, um, you know, outside of just, just, uh, just, just the team. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a real challenge. And, and in Australian rugby, the, the, the actual the formal squad size that you have is less than 38, you know, the one that you nominate at the start of the season. So it's kind of crazy when you know that statistically you're going to use 38 players in the, in the, in the season, but you don't contract uh, 38 to begin with. So those fringe players who make up the, the additional numbers are generally players out of the academy or out of uh, local club rugby that are kind of training with the, with the main group part-time often um but you know there's a hell of a step up from playing club rugby to to playing super rugby and uh and, and um, i think sometimes that's where some of the australian teams have been caught out and one of the things as as we look to rebels because obviously you had the time with the western force and that's obviously such a great um experience you know becoming the world's you know youngest super rugby coach that's a phenomenal start to i think that head coaching role um 
But one of the things that really stood out was when the force got, um, you know, absolved and you know, no longer featured in the 2018 season. I think it was 12 or so of the players um, ended up following across to the Rebels as, as fully contracted players. So it must have felt like, you know, you obviously had built that connection and, and got quite a strong base of players there to build from. Um, going across to the Rebels, did you find that there was much unlearning of the, you know, the players that were already in that system? Um, or were you trying to, you know, amalgamate the best of what the force had and what they already had? Because one of the things I've, I find so interesting is so many of these players have had, you know, upwards of probably 10 coaches, you know, just in the last sort of five or 10 years. Like how do you balance the things that they already yeah. know and the things that you want them to know as part of your um, system? Yeah. I think one of the things I was most proud of, um, Mitch was when, when, when we moved across to Melbourne or when the force got dissolved, um, first of all, it was a hell of a traumatic time, to be honest, the way it was done and everything. I mean, we can get into that, but um, it really was a bit of a shambles, to be honest. Um, but the players, I, I don't think there was a single player who signed overseas until he figured out what the rest of the team and what the coaching staff were going to do which was a huge compliment to the group, to be honest. You know, the guys really wanted to try to stay together. Um, the only player who did sign away was uh, Isi Nasarani. And um, Isi actually then signed back to us at the first opportunity he got. So he, he signed for the Brumbies on a one-year deal and actually came to Melbourne at the end of that. Um, so even he kind of stayed strong with the group. Um, I think the, I think the probably a big moment in my coaching career was I think we missed out in quite traumatic circumstances to the uh, to a playoff spot uh, at the end of that first season uh, in Melbourne. And I remember kind of looking around the room, sort of thinking, I wonder how many of these guys, if those circumstances were replicated in Perth, would stand together with me and with the coaches and with each other as they did, you know, um, 12 months ago. And my answer to that was they wouldn't. Mm. Um, and there was a, a couple of different reasons for that. But I think one of the main reasons is that the way I was coaching had actually changed. I think in Perth, um, I'd been an assistant coach with that group and probably built up some credibility and built, built great relationships with the guys uh, and was coaching them as people, you know, and was um, really focused on their improvement uh, and their success. And then I think for whatever reason, once I got to Melbourne, uh, I was much more focused on winning. Uh, and my, my whole way of interacting with the players and stuff was about winning. Um, and that wasn't necessarily healthy for our relationship. And I think the players maybe could sense I wasn't always 100% doing things the best for, for, for their best um, in, intentions, you know? Um, so it was a real wake-up call, to be honest, in my own coaching journeys, like to, to sort of reset myself a bit and uh, and figure out why I was in coaching in the first place. And um, yeah, so so that was um, um, that was part of it. I actually forgot the second part of your question so much. Well, I guess um, there were so many things that came out of that that I'm kind of happy to move on to part of that because as you were saying, that 2018 sort of felt like the season that missed out. Um, I was talking to James Marshall from the Hurricanes and he was talking about the 2015 team that made, um, you know, so much of the way through the finals. That was their mm. best team on paper. They couldn't get the job done. And then they came back with, you know, what on paper looked like a worse team and sort of had to atone for that because they felt like they'd missed the chance. Did 
did 2018 seem like the only or the one that got away because I think in every season you had with the Rebels, you were really right on the cusp of finals in each of the four years. Um, yeah. It, did it seem like 2019 was, um, you know, any harder to swallow or was 2018 really the one that got away? Oh, geez. I mean, they, they were both pretty gutting, I think. I mean, uh, um, I, I, look, I think I think one of the, the challenges is that, um, you know, I think winning teams, if you if you if you believe any of the stuff which I do that Ben Darwin uh, talks about, which is the cohesion of a team, it's it's not only about the individual talent that you can put on the field. Um, it's about how much rugby those guys can play together, um, and can they build combinations and kind of get a third sense of each other over time. And um, I remember when we went to go play the Crusaders. You know, the Melbourne Rebels have never had somebody play 100 games for the club. Tom English is the, is the most capped. I think he's on, on 99. Um, and we went to go play the Crusaders and the Crusaders had 13 players in the match day, 23 who played 100 games um, for the Crusaders, you know? And you can't say on paper that as talented as the Rebels are, that they're going to beat a club that has 13 guys who played 100 games together, you know, like, um, and so I think one of the challenges that we have in Australian rugby is to try to keep our lists together for a long period of time. Um, and one of the things that I think needs a fundamental change is, a, is, a, is, a, is the contracting model. Um, the contracting model doesn't necessarily allow, in my opinion, uh, you to build longevity in your, in your squad. It's not incentivized in the way that the rules are created in the, in the, in the, in the, in the contracting space. Um, so that has to change. Um, I think one of the other challenges that we have is that um, if you think about it, um, Australian Super Rugby team probably has seven, maybe eight home games in the year. The challenge is to be financially successful or viable with seven or eight home games is very difficult. Um, if you compare that with other sports or the AFL, uh, say for example, they, they have a lot more home games. The NRL have a lot more home games. Um, I say to people, it's a little bit like having saying you have a restaurant. You're going to open the restaurant for seven or eight nights a year, but you're going to employ your staff for 365 days of the year. You know, everybody can see in the restaurant business, it's not going to work. Uh, and the same is, is true of rugby. Um, and so in some ways, I think we need to rethink of the, the contracting model to say, we need our best players to be contracted 365 days a year and represent both the state and, and be in the Wallaby environment. And then that second mid-tier of players, particularly the older mid-tier of players who are not necessarily so much in a development phase anymore, uh, I, I feel need to be shared around and, and be able to play in other leagues, you know, be able to go and play in Japan or be uh, Europe for, for stints. Um, so that, I guess a little bit like county cricket, a guy can play yeah, county cricket, then he can play Big Bash, he can play IPL. So that, that his cost is attributable to the place that's actually earning the revenue at different times of the year, you know? Um, anyway, that was a tangent. So sure. <laughs> oh, I, I really like it. And with the contracting model, it, it's one of the things that I know they've sort of brought up the idea of centralization, you know, probably since you left the rebels. And it's one of the things that I'm keen to see how they implement, because I know at times throughout the season, you know, the, the Brumbies start next year with three Wallabies hookers and there are other teams that have, you know, none. So is that something where we, start to distribute players across 
and even throughout parts of this year, I mean, Stacey Illy and uh, George Worth and, you know, players that I don't think were originally contracted and, you know, came through at different points throughout the season. Um, you know, surely there were, you know, other players that with a different contracting model or, you know, if centralization was in bigger effect, maybe there is a greater sharing of resources. Um, yeah. It, is that something that you feel, you know, maybe because, um, I, I mean, there's been such a big case made for the players that were born in Melbourne that have since gone on becoming Wallabies. So obviously for um, Rob Leota and um, Rob Valentini and Pete Sama, we had the all Melbourne back row. That was a pretty special moment. Yeah, and awesome, yeah. Is that something where you feel like centralization would have, um, you know, benefited the team more just to try and have some more players that had already been in the Australian system for a while? Because Stacey Ely and George Worth, not only were they new to the Rebels, but they were new to Australian rugby from my understanding. Yeah, so I mean, Stace did play. Stace had played for us in the NRC at one point prior to to me being in in Melbourne. So he 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 did actually live in Melbourne uh, outside of uh, outside of him playing um, ITM Cup, okay. um, or Mitre Ten Cup now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things, Mitch. I think there's there's you know, for example. Um, um, we're really tough on on having foreign players uh, in in the in the Australian system. You know, we don't allow um, a lot of foreigners to, to to be in the system because there's a belief that that happens at the expense of young Australian players. Uh, I don't see the I've not seen the evidence of that. You know, a lot of these things people just kind of they assume, but who, who's who's provided the actual evidence that that is going to happen um, you know sometimes we think of only one side of the equation uh, for example um, you know um, if, if if the wallabies were to pick more Australian players the assumption is that all top-end wallabies uh, in Australia will go overseas well first of all that's definitely not true because I know a player, say, for example, like Matt Moore, he actually wants to live in Australia. He's taken the decision to live in Australia at the expense of going overseas, not necessarily to play for the Wallabies. Obviously, the Wallabies is a big part of that, but his lifestyle is in Australia. So that's the first part. But the second thing is Australians right now are attractive to European clubs because they know that when they lose their international players to the Six Nations, they are not going to lose their Australian players and they're not going to lose their Australian players during the test, the other test windows in the year because Australia is not going to pick those players. So in a, in a way, those we've actually made Australian players more valuable to, to, to European clubs. And there is an argument to sort of say, well, if we, we said we were prepared to pick foreign Australian players for the Wallabies, well, maybe those European clubs, you know, yeah, would, wouldn't value those players as much. Um, I think the other thing about having foreign players playing in Australia is that the IP that you get from having those type of players around, I think would accelerate our game enormously. You know, um, there's a lot of very talented young players in Australia, but to have an old experienced hooker who's played 200 premiership games or whatever, uh, played... Um, you know, in the sideways rain in in in, this, in, uh, in in Ireland somewhere or whatever, the, the stuff that a young hooker can learn from that player um, is absolutely invaluable. Uh, and so we shouldn't create a system where we don't allow that type of IP to kind of enter into the ecosystem. And um, sadly, I think we have done that over the last uh, last couple of years. 
Um, and, and the other the other thing that that I think about, you know, on this I guess issue particularly around foreign players is that Australia is a pretty is, is a melting pot of a lot of different nationalities, and I think in particular in Melbourne, um, you know, there's so many different nationalities represented, and I think one of the ways that um, the, the club can um, connect with a wider community is to have those uh, those people represented within the team, you know, to have people of other nationalities um, that represent the wider rugby community in Melbourne uh, in, in the senior team. Um, and unfortunately, the rules in many ways kind of restricted us from doing that. It's interesting hearing that because there have been so many examples of players that are, you know, capped from other teams uh, for other countries that have come in and done such a good job with Super Rugby sides and we've learned so much. I mean, Albie Matthewson, the number of seasons he spent with the force and was just, I think, such a, a freakish player that would have just instilled so much knowledge to the other halfbacks in the team. Um, obviously, Amanaki Murphy, Hendrik Tui, Thomas Kabeshi, and Rob Carney, like so many players yeah. over the last few years that have come in and done such yeah. a great job. Um, yeah, I mean, Elba is such a, Elba, Elba is such a competitive guy, you know, and it was, yeah. I mean, he's just a great guy to have in the environment. Like, um, you know, it, it remove his own individual skill, but just us learning from an all black, um, yeah, as I say, you know, the benefit that he gave to the young Australian players in that group was kind of immeasurable, I guess. And um, um, I would like to see more of it. I mean, one of the things that you, people, you know, often used to say, you know, the rebels, um, you know, there was criticism of should the rebels exist because there aren't enough players in Australia or, um, you know, um, should we go down to, to, to three teams or four teams or whatever the, the, the argument always was. I think um, one of the things you have to think about, I think, is that Australia is one of the most uh, is, is one of the, the most prosperous nations on earth, you know? and it's kind of crazy to think that we are are um, uh, having to lose players because of financial reasons. I mean, to me, that suggests we haven't got the financial model right, um, and. Um, I think if you, as I say, if you could share the cost of the bulk of your squad, certainly the, the second and third layer of your squad, and only pay them for the you know six or seven months of Super Rugby, and then have them um, go off into other competitions, other teams, or in some cases, like a Michael Wells, who's a qualified lawyer, have him able to go off and actually work for uh, you know uh, three or four months um, and and learn a trade. Hmm. Um, I think you have the ability to, to, to make the whole system a lot more viable and to spend a lot more money then on the top end to keep those guys playing in Australia uh, and to bring the best foreign players to Australia and build, um, you know, the world's best league. I mean, we should be thinking about how do we bring Mauro Toje to play Super Rugby and how do we bring own Farrell in to play Super Rugby? Um, and if we can do those things, then everybody's going to want to watch it, you know? Um, but um, for, some, for some reason, we we kind of stuck in our ways about a few a few things that have, uh, have um, I don't know, maybe prevented us from from thinking out the box. I think we're sort of seeing that other teams are doing that so much better. I mean, just seeing uh, Damien Dillander absolutely truck it up for you know he's on the URC. Um, yeah. They're just grinning ear to ear because they've got arguably the world's best inside center. And he's still able yeah. to play all of his tests with the Springboks. He's, you know, getting paid from two different, um, you know, unions. He's, you know, living quite well. And we're looking at it as a system that we can't really 
compete with. And it, it's, it's interesting. I think um, the URC is probably the, the prime example now for something that's very innovative. They've just introduced the South African teams and they seem to be going from strength to strength once, you know, they can sort of deal with the COVID, um, you know, ruining the structure of the, the fixture list. But the, the amount of players that are signing across these teams and the interest that that's sparking online, it seems to be the most talked about league at the moment because they're doing something different, which, you know, I'm hoping Super Rugby can sort of emulate at some point as well. But um, Dave, one of the things I just wanted to circle back to, when you mentioned cohesion before, I think I get in trouble because I mentioned cohesion nearly every, you know, podcast since um, <laughs> Benny Darwin brought it up a few years ago. But uh, I was digging through the, the squads because I've been watching, you know, the Super Rugby teams pretty um, keenly for a few years. And I think it was 2019 that, you know, the Rebels lost pretty much their the best back row of um, Fyinga, uh, Marthy and uh, Lepetti Tamani all going at the same time. And yeah, I, I think there was also two years in a row where, you know, all the fly halves in, um, in Deborah Sini, McGregor and Adams left and then Cooper and Dunbar left at the same time that, you know, all the scrum halves left in droves. It just seemed that while there wasn't mass exodus, it just seemed there were a few positions in each year that just sort of disrupted yeah. the cohesion of the team. Is yeah, there- you know, we beat... Yeah, Mitch, we beat the um, we beat the Highlanders in Dunedin in 2020. Um, then we came home and uh, I think we beat the uh, the Waratahs or the Lions. Yeah, I think the Waratahs, then the Lions, and and I think we were we were really on a roll. And I thought this, you know, the, the 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 group was really looking great. And then mm-hmm. COVID struck, and we unfortunately um, uh, we, we we had um, we had a buy uh, directly after that, which was actually the week COVID struck. But we. We had intended to recontract um, all of our players during that buy week so that the recontracting process wasn't a distraction to performance. So we'd kind of earmarked and we had everything lined up. And in certain, a lot of instances, we actually had players' contracts ready to go and to be signed. Um, and then unfortunately, Rugby Australia froze the contracting. So we ended up in 2020 in the, in the worst situation that we were in, which was... Um, um, that yeah, we, we had a whole bunch of players that had kind of we'd verbally agreed the, the terms with, but we weren't able to have their contracts uh, ratified. So that you know, a player like Matt Phillip is probably a great example. You know, Matt clearly wanted to stay because he's come back, but um, at the time we just couldn't guarantee him a contract, um, so he had to leave. So of that team that was really starting to I think build some cohesion together, um, a huge number of them left. And I think we ended up the next season with 13 new players, you know, uh, in the starting 15. Um, I think, I think, I think to take a step back on, on a guy like Quaid or, um, um, you know, some of the other guys you've mentioned is, again, that, that's where the complexity of the Australian contracting model is, is difficult because um, um, obviously Quaid can, can command top dollar overseas. Uh, I think he wanted to stay in Australia. Um, we were having, you know, a lot of conversation with him about that. But if, if you don't get support for Rugby Australia on, on keeping a player like Quaid through a Wallaby top-up, there's no ways that the club can actually afford to pay him. Yeah. Um, and what you can't do is you can't go and pay, let's just use arbitrary numbers, but pay, um, you know, let's say $500,000 as a club for a player where uh, the, the, the Reds may have James O'Connor who may be worth the same 500,000, but they're only contributing 250,000 of it because not only do they then get James O'Connor for 250,000, they have another 250,000 to go and spend on another player. 
So the, the, the system makes it, um, if you don't get your, the lion's share of Wallaby top up, um, if there's no equalization of how the top up money is distributed, um, the system itself can be quite, um, uh, I don't want to say unfair, that's not the right word, um, inequitable probably. Um, um, and, and, in, and in certain instances, if you don't have the, the, who the Wallabies consider to be the starting tight head, if you have the next best tight head, it proves quite difficult to keep that guy in Australia if the, if the Wallabies don't agree that he's the next up and coming uh, tight head because he gets to a level of earning where it doesn't make financial sense for the club to retain him. Um, and you can't retain him without the support of rugby of the Wallabies. And so there's a, there's a, there's kind of three negotiations going on. There's one between you and the players, one between you and the, uh, and the Wallabies. Um, and it doesn't always, and they don't always line up. Um, and so you end up, I, I felt the Rebels were unlucky a number of times where we had what we felt was a really great player, but who wasn't maybe the starting player in the Wallaby environment at that point in that position. And um, I guess because resources were, were skinny, um, we weren't then able to retain him. And it wasn't, it was very seldom a reflection, I thought, on, on the Rebels environment or on the Wallaby environment. It just came down to a financial, a financial thing for the player. And it seemed like it was poor timing as well, just given that this year there was such a large number of Rebels in that Wallaby squad. Like, if anything, the, the sort of fortune was changing um i think there were a lot of fixtures where there were more rebels than reds um you know and having players like leota or philip or you know obviously Callaway's just come leaps and bounds is you know probably been one of the the best players of the wallabies this year and, and the fact that they're now uh, kells is a great example of that mitch because kells kells i mean i hope he doesn't mind me saying it, but at the time you know he he, he really wanted to stay mm. um before he went to japan you know and he was super open about it i thought he handled himself really well um, you know, we talked about it at length and, and then at some point he said, look, you know, you guys, the, the contracting at that point was, was frozen. We just couldn't offer him a deal. Uh, and he had this choice between taking the risk of maybe getting nothing and, and going to Japan and he, you know, and he, he went to Japan, but he, um, you know, so I'm so, I'm so pleased to see him back and I'm so pleased to see him doing well because he, uh, yeah, I thought he really handled him. <clears throat> I thought he really handled himself well during a, what was a difficult time and he was very mature about it. And I think he's, He's kind of been rewarded. Obviously, the club was delighted to have him back, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased he's doing well. Um, just on Callaway, I, I did want to get your opinion because obviously you get to see these players with access that very few do. Has there been someone over, you know, the, the last sort of six years between the Force and the Rebels that just sticks out even amongst these professional athletes as just being a, a completely different kind of rugby player? Is there, is there someone that's just really th that top tier rugby player amongst all those? Is this is there someone that sticks out as a, as a special player in that group? Is that what you? Yeah, yes, as someone that's just a, a, above and beyond even just the the rest of the professional players that you get to train with. Someone that just sticks out even amongst these you know supreme athletes. Well, I think I, I mean yeah, there's a few. Um, I think just in terms of pure athlete, sure. I, would, I, I think Marika is just a, you know, I mean he's just an athletic freak, Marik's. Um, mm. You know, he can just he, he just. Uh, 
they're just put together differently. And uh, I think one of the things that that would surprise people about Marika is how he trains. You know, he just trains with such an intensity all the time. He trains like he plays. You know, if you came to watch training, you'll see Marika just absolutely sprinting after everything. And um, um, yeah, I mean, he stands out for me. But there's a lot of players in that. You know, I mean, Will Genia was probably just from a raw talent point of view, I mean, he'd be right up there as one of the best players I've I've ever I've, I've worked been you know worked with. He's yeah. just so talented, you know. He could just do anything really, Willie G. Um, but there's a, there's a lot, you know. And I think I think one of the exciting things actually in Melbourne is that um, oh, just before I left, you know, there's a, there's a very talented junior group that had done very well as a junior team, and there's a lot of very good young players in that group, you know. So I think. Um, fortunately, I think um, they're all they're all staying on at, at the club now, and I think the real challenge is to try to keep that group together for for a few years. And I think if if Footy can do that, then uh, then I think that could be a really special group of players. Um, and um, yeah, uh, it's it's hard it's hard to isolate um, individual players, Mitch, about uh, you know who's who's kind of the most special or who did the things because I think every, a lot of players. A lot of players do things that are not seen by the public. You know, like um, someone like Marcel Brachy is a great example at the force. You know, he um, might not have been the most talented on-field player that you've met, but he was just so valuable for the team environment. You know, like you'd come in, a new player would arrive there and Marcel would welcome him, give him a bum tap. They'd be in the gym. Marcel would be making him laugh. You know, they'd be, um, you know, it's like they, they knew each other for years, you know, and, and immediately that player feels part of the group and stuff. So, um, he used to come up with songs in the fines meetings and all that sort of stuff. And that type of player is as valuable to your team, I think, as the best uh, on-field uh, performer, you know. Um, so, yeah, players are, can make a contribution in different ways. Players and staff can make contributions in different ways. It's not always necessarily, I think, what the public might see. That's um, It's interesting to hear because I, I think that also tied in a bit to um, a old podcast I heard you on um, the leading conversation with uh, Tom and Kyle, I think over in South Africa as well, just how they're asking about some of the, the things you do as a coach that I guess separates you from other coaches. And one of the things I think that is important got mentioned then was, um, you know, getting the buy-in from, you know, some of the key leaders in the groups and some of the players that, you know, either if they're an on-field captain or just, you know, off-field, they provide so much of that energy and that motivation for the younger players. But I guess what I'd be keen to know, what did you find is the most challenging aspect of coaching? What's the most rewarding aspect of it as well? Because you've been through so many teams and, you know, still it's such a young age, you know, still so many teams yet to coach through. There's, there's so many different things to unpack. So, so what's been the most challenging so far? And what's the most rewarding? Um, sorry, has my little girl come so. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, Sure. I mean, it's such a it's such a it's such a privileged uh, job, Mitch. You know, that's that's probably the first thing. And, and we used to talk about that a lot as staff. Is that um, um, I think you I think the onus on you to work hard and to really really give everything to it because there'd be there's so many coaches out there in club land or school rugby that um, would would die to to have the, the position that you have. You know, um, so. Yeah, so I think I think it's I think bearing that in mind is important. I think it sounds funny. I was actually saying this to someone last night. I thought one of the hardest things about the job was that everywhere you go, people want to talk about rugby with you. <laughs> it sounds like, it sounds silly, but, 
you know, if you go to a, a school function or you go to you know, a pub with whatever, um, and um, yeah, I think sometimes you just you, you, you need a bit of a break from it, you know. And, I, and maybe that's what I, I wasn't great at doing. I think if you ask some of some of some of the staff that worked with me, you know, they were quite good in the last year or two of actually almost forcing me to do stuff. I, I wasn't exercising like I should have. I wasn't doing all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, there, there were some staff there that were that were great to me, and they they pushed me to 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 to, to do those things better. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think also um, it's it's like it's like any job, you know. Like there's parts of the job that you enjoy, and there's parts that you don't enjoy. I don't think there's any anybody has a job where absolutely everything is perfect. And um, um, I think you try to dial up the stuff that you do enjoy and do more of that um, as you get a little bit more experienced and you learn to pass some of the stuff that you you maybe aren't as good at or don't enjoy so much to the people in your environment that are better at that, you know. Um, and I think we we. We got a bit better at that over, over the years. Absolutely, and I think it's one of the things that I look back at COVID is, as I mentioned before, about the the asterisks that it leaves for every event. I look back at to uh, the Reds because I'm a Red supporter. I should have mentioned that earlier, but I um, you know, sort of saw them struggle through 2018. I have to end the I was keeping them for as long as possible just so you wouldn't hang up. But. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I saw them 2018 and 2019. I mean, they were third and second last on the ladder and, and didn't really look super convincing at times. And, you know, to see them turn that around now, I, I really had the feeling that the Rebels had that same sort of, you know, mentality. They keep the, the squad together. They could very easily have been the, you know, that top half of the ladder. Yeah. And even you know, well, I, I think, you know, if you look at the, at the, at the start of the, uh, just before COVID struck and it was super rugby, um, you know the red. The Reds actually uh, were struggling a little bit at the start of that season. Yeah. Uh, and we we were we were. I thought we were just a few months ahead of them. You know, we'd beaten the, as I said, we'd beaten the Highlanders away. We'd we'd we'd, we'd pushed the Sharks pretty hard um, as well. The Sharks were top of the top of the table that day. I thought we were unlucky with one or two things that happened in that game, but we pushed them pretty hard. We beat the Waratahs. We beat the the Lions quite convincingly. Uh, and I I I had in my I, I felt in my guts that this was the, the, the group that I could feel this was really coming together now. And I could feel we had some momentum and there was like an energy, but there was a cohesion in the group that I hadn't experienced yet at the Rebels. And I thought that was really going to be a great season for us. And then, of course, unfortunately, that very, you know, that very next week, COVID struck and the whole thing finished. We lost a whole bunch of players through that process I said before. And the Reds retained a lot of their players and then, uh, you know, to their credit, really kicked on, which is which has been great for them. Um, I think one of the things you 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 as you know talking about cohesion. If you look at that Reds group, you know everyone talks about the fact that they played and they played NRC together, and I think they played junior, a lot of junior rugby together. But a huge number of them also went to Nudgy, you know, so they played a lot of schoolboy yeah. rugby together. Um, so you've got this enormous amount of cohesion in that group, which Brad has facilitated really nicely, and um, I think they they you can see that now in the way that they play, you know, and that's. That's the biggest thing I think the Rebels have to have to solve. We beat the Lions uh, in I think 2012 or maybe 2013, uh, really convincingly. Um, and Johan Akerman, who was the coach, was very relaxed after the game, having a beer with him, and he just said, "You know, they've all been contracted there for five years, and uh, and he's got a five-year project. And of course, a few years later, they made the World Cup, they made the Super Rugby final. You know, yeah. Um, so they kept that group together. In that group was a lot of guys who were 
kind of misfits at the time. You know, there was a Franco Mostert in there. I remember when Franco played, you know, he he um, he was a good varsity cup player and he couldn't quite get a super rugby gig. And then he, he got one at the Lions. Um, and then because because they gave him so much game time and they gave him exposures and even though they were losing, they just backed them and they, they kept them together. That group developed and developed and developed and eventually they made the, the, the Super Rugby final. You know, you, you can't shortcut it. You know, you can't, uh, you can't, um, yeah, you can't shortcut experience. And, um, and I think some of where Australian rugby has gone wrong is to sit down with a, you know, they should, the Rebels should, in my opinion, sit down with footy and say, here's a five-year, six-year deal. Um, these are the kind of couple of key milestones we want you to hit along the way. But a lot of it for me would be around building a team of 100 cap players, uh, 50, you know, 50 cap players, um, because that, to me, is the only way you're going to win long-term. And I think there's definitely the cattle there now that if they can stick around for a bit, uh going to be absolutely unreal i mean the, the back row is so exciting between all the permutations of dickie hardwick and wilkin and uh Kemeny, leota wells there, there's so many great options just chomping yeah. at the bit for minutes um, yeah and the, and, the, and the coaching and the coaching staff's good too much you know like um um iran martin who's now the new new full-time attack coach but he was there when we were there i mean he's a really excellent coach i think the attack is going to be firing you know jeff Pauling is um is I mean, I've been lucky in that I've worked with a lot of very senior forwards coaches. I mean, Jeff is one of the best I've worked with. He's, mm. he's, um, I think he's got the, the credibility because he's been there and done it as a player. But um, you know, he just he just works so hard at being a good coach. Um, yeah, he, he's going to do a great job. And then um, you know, um, Footy is uh, Footy's a, a really good mate of mine. But he, he's he's just a great guy, and the, the players will definitely play for Footy. You know, he yeah. brings massive energy, and he brings massive energy to their D. And the the strength and athletic program, uh, I think, is the best in Australia. Probably has been for a little while. You know, so um, they've got all the ingredients there that I think can make them very successful. I think it's it's probably now the trust from from the board and things to say that there's a, there's a bit of a process, you know, and they've got to, they've got to keep the group together and they've, they've got to give the guys the space they need to work and, and to build, you know. Even just because I'm doing sort of the previews now for the team and looking at the squad, I mean, I'm so excited by the idea of, you know, Cam Moore and Pony Farmer getting a whole season, you know, just yeah. no injuries, just getting to play together. Even um, Reese Van Neck plays at my local club or played at my local club in Brisbane and, He's an absolute animal. The fact that he didn't get much of a chance, you know, with injuries and stuff, but he's an unreal scrummer from all the, the bits I've seen him in. And, you know, the fact that he's probably the, the fifth choice at the moment, or, you know, the, the last rung for the um, contracted props, yeah. it, it shows the depth there. And I, I think it's a yeah. really exciting time for the Rebels. But um, yeah. one thing I'd be keen to, I guess, end on, because I've really enjoyed being able to, you know, unpack so much of what's happened in your career so far but with the rebels next year what, what do you see as being probably the biggest difference between how you and uh, footy coach because you you know have spent what probably the last five or so years together at least you know between the force and rebels what, what's the big difference i guess or what, what are you expecting to see change yeah i mean i think footy and i spent the last 10 years together which we, we oh, actually coached yeah, we we coached together at at at, uh, at varsity cup level. We won a we won a varsity cup together. Um, Footy was the head coach. I was the assistant coach. So we've we've um we've been together a long time. And yeah, he he has he has been a great head coach before a successful head coach. I think he um 
Yeah, as I said, I mean, he's, he's just a, he's a hell of a passionate guy. He brings great energy. Um, he's got a great sense of humor. Uh, I think the squad, I think it'll be a happy squad. You know, I think the guys will enjoy being part of that environment. He makes coming to work every day fun. Um, I, I would say that probably, in, I would hope in some ways that um, um, we've kind of learned off each other over the last 10 years, I would say, you know, like, I think, I, don't, I think, I think a lot of the stuff that he would, he would keep doing, Hopefully that the, the the best stuff that he he thought was um, was in the environment he'll be able to keep and then um, he'll be able to just evolve the bits and pieces that he thinks needed to improve or to change you know so um, I think they're probably lucky in some ways that it won't be a total um, revolution you know it'll just be a, a, a slight evolution and improvement you know no doubt he'll definitely improve things but um, I think there's a benefit to not totally having to start again you know there'll be some There'd be a lot of good things that we did that he'll be able to retain, and um, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually pretty excited. It's going to be nice to um, to be able to sit on the sideline and shout at the TV and yeah. shout at the ref. <laughs> so slightly different level of uh, slightly different level of stress. Just make sure you uh, don't make any <laughs> yeah. videos and stay off Twitter for the uh, for the feedback. But uh, yeah. yeah Dave, I've really enjoyed the chat. Um, I think what you've brought to Australian rugby over the last, you know, several years has just been unreal. And I'm very, you know, hopeful that at some point we see you back in the shores. I mean, um, even as a Reds fan, I don't want the other teams doing too well. But, um, you know, I, I think what you've done has been unreal. So, look, all, all the best for, you know, the, the next job that comes up, because I'm sure there's a lot of offers uh, coming at the door knowing that you're, um, you know, got a bit of spare time now in South Africa. Thanks, Mitch. I appreciate it. Thanks. Nice to chat, huh?